Welcome to Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of... Woodworking. I'm Guy Dunlap of Guy's Woodshop, and as always, I'm joined by Hui Huen, also known as the Alabama Woodworker. Good evening, Guy. How are you? Good. And Brian Schmidt. What's going on? Same old thing, different day, Brian. What's up, bro? Yeah. So. So this podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. And we also have a Patreon account. And right now we have one level. We're simply asking for a small donation just to try to cover the costs of bringing you this podcast. So please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife. I'd also like to say hello to our newest patrons, Michael Sand, and I'm going to say his name wrong, Bo Doins, I think. So thank you guys. And we sincerely hope that uh, the rest of you will give us your support. Yes. And stay tuned in the end of the show to hear about what we've got going on in our shop. So, Hui, you've got the first question. So this first question is from Kevin. It's a really interesting question from Kevin. Hi, everyone. Thank you for a great show. I've been listening to the entire catalog twice. Oh, gosh. Learning a lot. <laughs> in episode number 115 and other episodes, you mention UV light turning walnut orange or lighter. I recently built a large dining room table out of walnut. I did not dye the table, even though I knew color change was possible. I've never used dye before, and the walnut was so stunning I was afraid that I would mess it up. If my table turns orange, so I'm assuming here that he's already finished it, if my table turns orange, can it be sanded off? How deep does the UV damage go into the wood? If I was to dye the walnut, could you please remind us what color dye you have used that works on walnut? How you have applied it to walnut and when in the finishing process? Thanks again for a great show and great woodworking education. So, can the orange be sanded off? No, I don't believe it can. It, I believe that it would take a lot of sanding to get that orange out. It could if you took off like an eighth of an inch of it. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, it, would, it would change the, the whole look of the piece. Yeah, uh, especially uh, for, gosh, I don't know how long it probably would, but it would have been that way. But I imagine that, you know, maybe if the first signs of UV color change were to be identified, and you might be able to sand it off and it didn't depend on it. But I, I highly doubt it. That being said, let's say he's got UV color change and it's already happened. Could he, and I think, I think I know the answer, could he sand it off and dye it? And if he were to dye it, let's talk about the process of dyeing that, uh, that product. I'm going to go ahead and say if he were to sand off the finish and he exposed the wood grain, if he were to dye it, that might solve his problem and even out the color i don't know for sure i've never tried it but i would say that i in the situation where you've got in the situation where you've got color change you do to uv light and you didn't like it it would at least be worth a try i don't know the answer to that guy what do you think i you know First of all, I, I know I use the word orange, and I guess I should clarify that a little bit. It's not really orange; it's like a orangish brown. Yeah, it's just it's just lighter than what you're used to seeing. Yeah, 
and to me it has an orangish tint to it. But it, do, mm -hmm. it doesn't sound like it turns into orange. Um, I I think that if you if you didn't like the way it looked, you could sand it back and and dye it. I don't think that would be a problem. I mean, you can make you know any color wood, any color you really want with yeah. with dye. It really depends on how much you put on it and how how deep of a uh, color you put in. What I had done before, and I think I mentioned this, I don't remember the specific discussion of episode 115, um, but I, the way I've done it in the past is I've taken uh, denatured alcohol and I've used the, oh, I can't even think of the name of the stuff. Transcent. Transcent dyes, yeah. And a very, very weak solution. So maybe like three drops, four drops in a 16-ounce yeah. bottle of it. It doesn't take a lot. It doesn't take much at all. And it just it's just enough to try to keep the, the walnut color fast. Yeah. In other words, it's not going to react. The, you're not going to notice the reaction as much right, right. as you would undyed. Right. But it still keeps it the same color. Yeah. Have uh, Have you ever tried anything like that, Brian? I I haven't. Although when I read on the on the Homestead Finishing Products, which is the company that makes the transtint dye, yep. they do have a section on their FAQ page about their dyes and whether or not they're light fast. Um, and it does talk about them being fade resistant. Mm -hmm. um, nice. Will it Will it completely um, preserve the color, maybe not, but it's certainly going to um, certainly going to to minimize the impact. And of course, anytime you put something in prolonged or even intermittent exposure to strong sunlight, it's gonna it's gonna fade. Um, but it sounds like a, a viable approach for for preserving that that deeper, richer brown color of the walnut. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know if I talked about this before. That the the guy that owns I probably have the guy that owns Homestead Finishing. finishing his name is Jeff Jewett. Yeah, yeah. He lives in North Royalton, Ohio. That's like where I'm from. I actually worked with Jeff for about four years. Really doing what? <laughs> it's when I sold uh, TV and stereo equipment retail oh, okay. for a company there. Oh. Work for the same hey, company. Hey guy, hey guy, I've got a, uh, I've got a follow up question on this one. So if you were gonna, if you were gonna go and and apply that uh, darker walnut colored dye to a table, walnut table that's kind of faded to that orangish brown color, is there any advantage or disadvantage to using like a distilled water as your solvent as opposed to the uh, like a denatured alcohol? Is one better or worse on on a dark wood like walnut? I like using the denatured alcohol because it flashes off quicker. Yes. And when applying it, it's it gives you it's much easier to apply an even coat of it. Okay. Because of that. What would be it has nothing to do with one is better than the other. It has just, a better impact or anything. Yeah. 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 Because ultimately, once the 
whether it be denatured alcohol or distilled water, once it flashes off or evaporates, what you're left with is just the molecular pig, the structure of the dye embedded into the wood grain is really all you're left with. Um, yeah. So I, I do the same process as you guy. And I do that process because I've watched one of your videos. I think it was on your Walnut dining table. Yeah, so um, not, not to shamelessly plug you guy, but Kevin, check out that video. It's, it's a really simple process and you, uh, you can make the color more or less intense with uh, how many applications of that dye mm -hmm. that you put on. But I would err on the side of maintaining or color fasting the color as opposed to making it deeper or richer um, because you like the color of it already. Now, let's talk about something else that he didn't ask here and then we'll move on. What about muting the wood grain? Does dye mute the wood grain at all? I believe the answer is no because on a molecular structure, it's just much finer versus like a stain, which is more like a pigment or a paint that you're putting over top of the wood. So Kevin, you know, if you're going to try it, try it with the dye. Don't, don't use, um, don't use a stain or an oil-based stain where the carrier is some type of oil or whatnot. I think you're better off using an aniline dye. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, Brian, you are up. Yeah, this question comes from Chris Olson, and he goes by at custom by Chris on Instagram. He says, hey, fellas, I'm in the market for a new table saw. I'm coming from a two horsepower grizzly hybrid saw with a broken part I cannot find a replacement for. Oh. I'm debating between a three horsepower powermatic or saw stop. Either of these will be a major upgrade from what I have, but do you have opinions either way? The saw stop technology is great, and I understand accidents can happen, but I tend to think if your hands are that close to the blade, you've got bigger problems. That said, the saw stop is up to $1,000 cheaper than the Powermatic, depending which add-ons you choose. Do you have any thoughts, or are there other brands I'm missing and should look into? Thanks for your time, Chris. Um, so the last question he asked was, um, are there any other brands I'm missing and should look into? I'm not immediately aware of, of another brand that for the money is just head, head and shoulders better um, than, than Powermatic or SawStop. There are a lot of functional table saws out there, but if you're considering a, a Powermatic or a SawStop, I don't, I don't think you're going to go wrong either way. I don't know that there's, there's a diamond in the rough out there um, yeah. waiting to be discovered. Now, in the question of do you have opinions either way on the Powermatic or the saw stop, I am biased to the saw stop. I have a PCS 175, so the 1.75 horsepower uh, cab professional cabinet uh, series or professional cabinet saw. And I bought it because I'm, well, I'm, I think I got it when I was 35 a couple years ago. And I, Lord willing, will have many years of life and woodworking ahead of me. And while I, I don't ever intend on throwing my hand into the blade, uh, accidents do happen. And um, it's the, the amount of money that it costs for me, for the amount of time that I plan on using the saw, is a really small investment in, in protecting me from that particular risk. The other component for me in choosing to get a saw stop is because I have... Uh, three kids, two of which are boys, and have shown a little bit of interest in spending time in the shop. Yeah. Um, 
as they get older and, and closer to that age where I can responsibly teach them how to use a table saw um, and they'll be learning, uh, having that added security feature or safety feature, I mean, is something that was, was really important for me and really made that the only option that I, I really considered. Guy, what about you? <laughs> I know uh, you're I'll, let, I'll let we go first. Okay. <laughs> I'm right there with you, man. You got You know, we're going to outvote uh, Guy here. No, I went with the SawStop PCS, the three horsepower unit. Um, that being said, if I didn't have a SawStop, I'd go with a Powermatic because yeah, oh for sure, but those things are sweet. I've used them and they are nice, man. They are heavy duty, but you know, just just Chris, something to consider: the PCS versus the ICS. ICS, they're 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 hugely different. One is industrial sort of cabinet shop grade and the other one is more like excuse me sorry i tapped the mic professional uh, prosumer grade right so uh i think the three horsepower power depends on guy you can talk to more about this than i can but the the three horsepower uh powermatic there's a different uh, you you really have have to compare the 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 powermatic to the ics yeah, the PCS, the industrial right. cabinet saw. Right. If you look at the, I got in this, I wouldn't say an, an argument, but a disagreement with somebody online, and they were saying, well, no, it's actually the PCS. I said, well, well, why is the PCS three horsepower weigh 300 pounds less than the Powermatic? Yeah. And uh, the Powermatic and the ICS are very close in weight. I, I had the, the opportunity. I, I, you know, Chris, I, I toyed with this or struggled with the same decision myself. And I was fortunate enough to go into a local Rockler and they had both the ICS and the Powermatic sitting on their floor side by side. Yeah. I spent probably 45 minutes opening them up, crawling through them. I looked at everything. And the, the, what really did it for me, first of all, you know, as, as far as the safety feature goes, I get it. Yep. Um, but that wasn't a major, I just wanted the best, I just wanted my last saw I was ever going to buy. Yeah. So both saws are extremely well made. You know, the power, the, 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 the saw stop is a very well made saw. I'm, I'm not going to say it's junk because it, it's not. However, when I looked at the trunnions, which is the mechanism that holds the, 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 the motor and the arbor and moves up and down and side to side, the, the difference in the castings between the Powermatic and the saw stop were night and day. Um, just massive compared to the saw stop. And, and that, that was the ICS Powermatic, uh, yep. saw stop pow- ICS. Okay, yep. gotcha. Yep. Just want to make sure he, he knows that it. was the that was the, the the icing on the cake for me, and that's why I ended up going with the, the Powermatic. And at that time, the Powermatic saw versus the ICS was a thousand dollars less. 
Now, is your saw paramatic a three horsepower or a five a horsepower? Five. It's a five. It's a five. Okay. It's so a it's a, it's the oh. big boy. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I went with the, the, the Powermatic. Now we have SawStop ICSs at work. And after using one for a while, I'm really glad I have the Powermatic. The dust collection on those things is just horrid, just mm. awful. It might as well not even have a vac hooked up to it. And the every time you want to use a dado stack, changing out that cartridge is just for the birds i just mm. i, I want to put it i just want to you know slip my wrists every time i think about putting a dado <laughs> stack on there and for that reason I'll, I'll go over to the router table and put a, a a bit in there if i have to put a groove in something fair you know i'd rather use a, da, a dado stack um in some cases but i just don't want to i don't want to mess with that thing it's just just awful so I'm glad I went with the Powermatic for a lot of different reasons. But the you can't go wrong with the saw stop. It's still a very good saw. Yeah, both are very good saws. Um, I, I would agree with you, Guy, on that. That the I don't know. I, I feel like the dust collection on the saw stop could be a little bit better. I feel like the shroud, the under the cabinet shroud on that thing could be, I don't know, just a little tighter or a little better. I don't know. I I just haven't been impressed. And also, by the way, I never use the overarm uh, blade guard. I just, I hate it. I hate not having, not being able to see where that blade is. It just annoys the heck out of me. And I know it's even more safe to have that blade guard there, but like, I just don't like having it there. So I never use that over the arm dust collection port. Even with that, it doesn't work very well. Oh, really? A lot of people out there say, oh, yeah, it works great. You don't understand until you've used one that has real dust collection. Um, I can spend an hour at my saw, and when I'm done, there's without a blade guard on top of it, without Mm -hmm. overhead dust collection, and there's very little sawdust on top of the saw. And mind you, I have a clear view five horsepower, big monster cyclone that's really, it'll suck the shirt off of you. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but for whatever reason with, and I've got a, the zero clearance inserts on the saw stop too. And for whatever reason, I just don't get as good of dust collection as I would expect for a saw of that caliber. Anyway, uh, anyways, just real quick too. And another saw you might want to take a look at is the Grizzly 1023. Maybe yeah, you've got a bad so. experience with a Grizzly for the one you have right now. But the Grizzly 1023 is a saw they've been making for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. It's very heavy. It's very stout. And it's tried and true. Yeah. And it's it's not $18,000. Well, so. well here, here's the other thing is that he's got a hybrid saw that's not even really in the same, same class yeah. as the 1023. So. Yeah. Yeah. So. Anyways, okay, I hope that helps, Chris. I think I've got the next question here. That's right, Guy. It's you. This comes from Dave, and Dave says, Hey, guys, I know finishing gets hit often, but this is perhaps a different spin. My basement garage is my workshop. So uh, part of the sentence is getting cut off. i got to move this a little bit. Uh, 
So odor and chemical safety is a concern. I'm mostly uh, done with my plywood poplar painted dresser. Uh, thanks for the tips, by the way, screwing and gluing without fancy joinery made assembly of breeze. That being said, what is a good low, low odor option for finishing a paint grade project that's being painted white? Yellowing and tannin bleed are therefore both concerns. I've heard y'all talk about conversion varnishes, but also heard complaints about odor. Would bin water-based primer under enamel be best? Should I go the oil-based primer paint route for durability? I have gotten, I've recently gotten a paint sprayer, but I am open to rolling if that's preferable. I'll attach my budget sprayer below for context. I haven't, unfortunately, I don't see that here. So thanks so much. And this is by far the best woodworking podcast, Dave. First things first, I am going to agree with you, Dave, that this is by far the best woodworking podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Let's, let's talk about your question here. Um, if you've got a sprayer, I you can get conversion varnish that's water-based. And you can get it pigmented so it's white. That's what I used in my kitchen. I used a pigmented, water-based conversion varnish. It sprays really super easy, and it works really well. If you don't want to use a sprayer and you are worried about the... Uh, bleed through with especially with the uh, poplar which can have some you know weird colors in it especially like greens and blues and purple you can use like a, a zinser over the top of it or you can just use shellac as a pre-coat and that'll help greatly reduce the amount of bleed through in those colors what do you think we yeah, um, I would go with the water-based conversion varnish if you've got the sprayer that can uh, that can um, spray it. Um, yeah, with with regards to a primer, you can use your water-based conversion varnish as the quote-unquote primer. I would say don't do that because it tends to be a little bit thinner. Uh, by the way, the conversion varnish that I'm mostly familiar with is the Chem Aqua Plus. Uh, I think, I don't know if Sherwin-Williams is still making that. You'll have to check, but there is an equivalent out there. Um, but I've, I've used the Sherwin-Williams Chem Aqua Plus. I know, Guy, you don't like Sherwin-Williams because they're jerks to you and their customer yeah. service isn't that great. <laughs> but I, I've had good experience with my yeah. local commercial uh, paint store. Anyway, that being said, I would advise you not to use Chemaqua Plus as the primer, primarily because it tends to be a little bit thinner than the Bin Zinser color block stain blocker primer. I would go that route before actually using the Chem Aqua Plus as the primer. And the reason is because of the thinness of the material. It just does not give the same coverage as I would like from a primer. Yeah, I used I used uh, a water-based primer on my cabinets before yep. I sprayed with the water-based conversion varnish. Yeah, yeah. Didn't have any problems. What about you, Brian? Uh, what does your finisher use? <laughs> Typically, I'll, uh, I'll let my, cli my clients will either paint it themselves or hire out the painting 
So that's a great question. Do you, do you recommend anything? Let's say the customer says, I want to paint it myself. What should I use? Do you, do you say, I have no idea, I'm not a paint guy, or do you give them a detailed answer? I tell them to find a paint guy, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty honest. I mean, yeah, that, I mean I, that's probably a good thing. I mean, I, right, like, I know what I'm good at and I know what I'm not, and being able to talk about anything, painting is well outside my area of expertise. And it's already installed, so you know they may find that there are some limitations for what can be done anyway. So, um, one one question I have, <laughs> one question I have for you guys. So he talked about having recently acquired a paint sprayer, but being open to rolling. Is any of those solutions that you described are the any of those rollable, or are they all going to require a sprayer to apply? You could try to roll the the water-based conversion varnish i've never tried it. i've used a brush and on very small things you know if you're going to use a, a roller um i know i i used to be on a podcast with freddie roman who's an expert at finishing and he used uh enamel paint all the time and he said he really liked it I don't think he was using a roller. I think he was using a paintbrush. Okay. He said it was pretty durable and it flowed well. I don't think it stinks either. Yeah, so I've used the Pro Classic for a lot of my trim work around my house, and I really like the Pro Classic, and that is pigmented as well, or can be pigmented. Um, so I've had good results. If you want to go the roller or the, um, the brush route, a good enamel to look at is the Pro Classic, and I don't think it's all that expensive. I think it's like uh, you can get it on sale for $30, or $35. Is that Sherwin-Williams also? That, oh, sorry, excuse me. Yes, that is a Sherwin-Williams product as well. So, And, you know, other than completely talking about Sherwin-Williams and wearing your Sherwin-Williams shirt and hat. I do there. not have a shirt. Everybody, it is a black t-shirt, okay? Excuse me, guy. Bright blue and red Sherwin-Williams. <laughs> You're a shell. Um, not. Well, maybe a little bit. Yeah, I'm a shell for, I was a shell for Powermatic a minute ago, so. All right. All right, we... I'm going to kick it back to you. All right. So this question is from Mike. Love the podcast. Thanks for all the hard work. I'm considering tackling a, an entertainment unit for my bonus room. However, I'm struggling with material choice. The cabinet finish will be painted. Do you suggest plywood or MDF? I plan on building some drawers with plywood boxes and MDF faces, but I'm concerned about the durability of the MDF when installing hinges. If I use it for the carcass construction, the overall length of this build is 16 inches long by eight feet tall with drawers along the bottom open shelving on either side of that with the TV in the middle. Normally I am not so indecisive. Long, 16 feet long. <laughs> I think it, was a, it was a typo in the question. I think it might be a typo 16 <laughs> yeah. feet. That's long. Uh, normally I'm not so indecisive. However, this is such a large project. Yeah, it's definitely 16 feet long. <laughs> and with the high cost of materials, I want to start off with on the right foot. Any guidance would be appreciated. Mike, 
Mike, this is a great question. So if you're talking about painted material, man, you cannot go wrong with MDF. MDF paints so well, especially when it's primed properly. I love painting MDF. I've, I've done it multiple times and it paints really, really well. And it comes out to be really super silky smooth when done properly. That being said, it is not the great, you're absolutely right. It is not the great to fasten screws to. So let's look at this from a conventional point of view. If you are creating face frames, right, for this construction, it sounds like to me you've got like open shelving and you've got shelves and you've got, do you have drawers? You've got drawers. So you've got drawer boxes. I would make the interior sections that you are draw, uh, attaching the drawer slides to, I would make that either out of some type of maple hardwood, softwood, uh, softwood, soft, uh, soft maple, not soft plywood, soft maple or plywood, either being maple or birch plywood. The issue that you're going to come across is when you're, if you're doing some type of like door hinges, and whatnot, especially if they're going to be the ones that attach to the face frames. That's where you're maybe gonna come into some issue whether or not you use either plywood or MDF because plywood going in the end grain portions or the laminated portions of plywood with screws do not work very well. Believe me, I've done it, I've tried it, doesn't work very well. But also the same for MDF as well. Um, it tends to um, strip out fairly easily. So if you are dealing with door hinges, I would say that go into face frames, I would say you might want to make those face frames out of some type of hardwood as opposed to even plywood or MDF. Sounds like you're not doing that. Sounds like you've got some drawers and you've got some open shelves. So I think if you make your face frames and whatnot or the painted sections out of MDF, you're going to be fine. The question is, with these shelving sides, if you are going to attach the drawer slides to that, I would probably make it out of plywood. What are your thoughts, Brian? Yeah, I'm not. I know there are people that that like using MDF in the, in the cabinet carcass construction. And I'm not mm. saying there's anything, I'm definitely not saying there's anything wrong with that, but my personal preference has always been to just work with like a maple plywood. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. It's more expensive, but you're also talking about the type of piece that's going into your house and it's not coming out. If you're building a 16 foot long, eight foot tall um, media or entertainment unit, I mean, you're going to be looking at that for a long, long time. And uh, the, the little bit of extra money uh, that the maple plywood is going to cost you over the MDF, I think is, is worth it just from a peace of mind standpoint, the screw holding power of the plywood when screwed into the face of the plywood, depending on how you are attaching your hinges. Um, yeah, I think you're going to find that that beneficial. I typically, the whenever I'm doing a, a project that has uh, doors or drawers, usually I'm doing uh, a half inch to, to one inch overlay, depending mm -hmm. on the, uh, with a face frame construction, depending on 
how how the cabinetry is being spaced out and i'll size the overlay based on the desired uh, distance between doors or drawers by the time everything is is fully installed so right i yeah for me it's face frames and and uh and uh just traditional plywood no no mdf now if you want to do the mdf in you talk about using mdf when building drawers with plywood boxes and MDF faces, um, I mean, you are going to get a, a good, clean, smooth paint surface on that MDF. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know, guy, what do you think? Well, um, I agree with everything you guys just said. The, the screw holding is going to be much better in plywood then it will be an MDF. Uh, there are some advantages to using MDF in certain pieces of the cabinet. The one thing that plywood never is, is it's not flat. Yeah. MDF is notoriously flat. So let me give you an example where I would use MDF. So let's say I'm going to build drawer faces. I would use, you know, for the boxes, I would go, you know, five-eighths or half-inch uh, soft maple. And for the drawer fronts, I would either use MDF yep. and I would edge band the sides with either, with either wood and paint over it. If it's going to be white, you could just use... Uh, white edge banding the 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 mdf is not very durable even with a couple coats of paint on it's just it it is easily damaged on the edges i would probably use myself i would use quarter inch or half inch mdf for the field of a face frame Mm. for the for the drawer fronts and the same thing with the doors now at work any drawer front and any door we put in they're all MDF, but we buy veneer core or MDF core uh, veneered yeah. panels. Yeah. So yeah. there's a, it's MDF, but it's veneered like plywood. Yeah. Uh, classic core. Is that right? No. Yeah. Anyways. So that's <laughs> what we use because it's flat. Yeah. And we can make doors out of it really quickly. And we don't make frame and panel doors typically. They're yeah. just what we call a slab door. And we do yeah. the same thing with drawer fronts. Mm-hmm. And it just makes them, but we're not painting them is the thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we get it the same species as the, the cabinet we're making. And they, they come out really, really good. And they do hold the cup hinges very securely. We've never had any any one of them fail that I'm aware of. Hmm. Okay, interesting. So those are places you can use MDF very yeah. easily. Huh. Okay. Yeah. One, one other thing that I would add um, to, to Mike is that in fine woodworking episode or episode, sorry, issue 295, the March, April, 2022 issue has a pretty in-depth article that, that dives into plywood and sheet goods for the woodworker. Um, and that's worth, that's a, I, I found it to be an interesting article when I read it at the time. It, it covers some of the traditional uh, sheet good products, but also dives into a few others that are 
less commercially available and less well known, but I, I found it informational and interesting. All right. Well, I think it goes back to Brian now. Yes. All right. All right. Um, it, it does. Yeah. All right. This question is from Sal at Oregon Woodworks on Instagram. He says, hi, guys. I'm a hobbyist turned turning professional woodworker based in Portland, Oregon. I've really enjoyed listening to the podcast and thought I would quickly ask your opinion on rectangular dominoes. I've been creating shop made dominoes to save money. Creating them is a pain in the butt. <laughs> yeah. Trying to nail metric roundovers with imperial bits at that level of precision is pretty involved. It usually takes a bit of time and wasted material to set the router table up correctly in order to batch a bunch out. Then running a glue groove on everything is another step that takes time. A thought came to me about creating a square-edged rectangular tenon that isn't hitting the radii of the domino mortise. My thought is that the few millimeters of void wouldn't really affect the strength of the joint, and the voids themselves would act as a hydrolock prevention by nature. Assuming that these aren't used for through-style tenons, do you see any issues using rectangular stock? Thanks for doing the podcast. Look forward to future episodes. Sal. So, Sal, what, or for the listeners that maybe aren't aren't as familiar with the domino, the, the domino uh, joinery tool um, will plunge a mortise into into your stock, and it and the mortise isn't a a rectangular squared off mortise. It's almost like a a race, a very you know long elongated racetrack shape. If you're looking at that racetrack from above, so on each of the left and right side of the mortise you've got sort of that curved or radii uh, section to it. And what Sal's suggesting is, can I just create rectangular stock that leaves that, that where once that curvature starts on each side of the mortise, leave that, leave that uh, just as a void. Uh, my understanding of that, that design for that mortise is that by having a mortise like that, that you can, put a domino tenon into and get more than just um, contact, glue joint contact on on the basically the faces of the board that you're also getting it kind of along the length of the board. That that's that's an aspect of that that, that significantly enhances the strength of it. Um, and I probably wouldn't want to to try to do that. Is it is it gonna render it useless? No. But I think some of the some of the value there is is some of the you know strength and not just or, you know strength in multiple directions of force. Yeah, um, guy, guy, what do you think? Well, I, I I think everything you said is correct, Brian. However, what Sal is doing is actually makes sense. You are you've got long grain to long grain. It really depends on how wide, not how thick the domino holes you're making are, but how wide you're making them. Yeah. So my first question is for Sal, this is like you, you, you splurged on a domino, but you're too cheap to buy dominoes. Come on. Man. <laughs> so anyways, um, uh, I'm just having some fun with you, Sal. Uh, I can't remember where I saw this, but there was a guy that was doing the same thing you're doing. So one of the benefits to the domino is kind of like biscuits. 
their compressed beach. And when the glue hits him, the water actually swells the domino. It's not going to do that with shop-made dominoes. What I saw a guy do, I can't remember where it was or who was doing it, but they made the material like you're talking about, but they made the, the blank material a little bit larger and they actually wouldn't fit into the holes. And then he took a, a machinist vise and put the, the homemade dominoes in there and crushed them with mm. the jaws of the vise mm. and made them smaller so they would fit in. And when he put the, the glue in them and the water hit them, they would expand and give you that extra oomph. Yeah. Um, that's something you might want to consider. What I would really consider doing is just going out and buying some dominoes. <laughs> yeah. I think in the long run, uh, Sal, uh, you're probably fine for most applications. But guy, guy hit the nail on the head. Those compressed beach dominoes and the compressed beach lamello biscuits, there's a real big benefit to that. Um, in that you get a super, super duper exacting fit in the biscuit slot and the domino slot that you have uh, due to their ability to expand with that moisture. So um, while I have done exactly what Sal has done in the past before even having a domino, you know, you bought a domino, dude. <laughs> you bought a domino. And, and and really, you know, there are there are aftermarket dominoes and biscuits that I have not bought. Uh, well, no, excuse me. I bought, but I've not tested the difference between. But they are pretty good, well-fitting. I bought some of those. Uh, how, 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 uh, have, you, have you been able to test them? No, I don't have time to, to test things like that. <laughs> I, I tested them in projects and they worked fine. Yeah, they seem um, to work fine. The ones I bought were, oh, I can't even think of the name right now. It's a German manufacturer, but they're they're German they're German company, but they're they're manufactured in in China, I believe. But they were about half the price of regular Domino's. I bought a big, huge tub of them. They came like in a big pretzel jar does it have like a yellow top on it like a yellow yeah. screw top yeah. i know what you're talking about i think i got the same ones you can get them on amazon you can get them at taylor tool works or different yeah they're, and they're, they're fine they're fine um but like i said you can also do the 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 thing like i mentioned with the vice and crush them a little bit so yeah that's a great tip i didn't think about that but uh, i've always just made them sort of uh exact or really close to exact sizing but but yeah crushing them is fine too but man you're going through the trouble of doing it's like i don't know man at, at some point you're sort of like hey you know what an extra five bucks because you know the material that you're using costs money and there's time into it as well yeah. it's like the extra five bucks is it really but, but i can understand that because it's 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 like okay i got i got you know and and I might take me for this, but you kind of get soaked just for buying the domino from this company. I'm wearing a Festool shirt right now, so I'm a shill for Festool. Talk about yeah. shills. Jeez. Um, they're very expensive. And, you know, after you've sold one of your kidneys and you sold off a couple of your kids, 
to afford this machine, you don't have any money left for Domino's. So I can understand that they are they are expensive, but in my opinion, they're worth it. If you're gonna if you're gonna buy the tool, buy the the right stuff for it. That's the best piece of advice I can give. So, all right, great. All right. Anything else, guys? Nope. nope. Take us nope. home, guy. All right. I'm going to take the last question here. And this question comes from Kurt. And Kurt says, hello, Hui, Guy, and Brian. You gentlemen, hello. as well as Sean, have been a huge help and inspiration to my woodworking journey. Keep the great content coming. Well, thanks, Kurt. He says, I recently picked up an older Bosch 1615 EVS plunge router mounted to an old tabletop with an Incra IntelliFence. While I can't find manuals online, while I can find manuals online for both of these discontinued items, I'd like to get your input on how to best set up an old router with this fence. Since this particular router is in its own molded housing, I don't think a router lift is an option. What do you all recommend for setting up this router in a new table? I intend to likely build a standalone router table with a top made with melamine left over from a recent project. But I'm open to suggestions. Thanks, Kurt. Yeah, I actually had, uh, I think it was the 1613 or the 1614 EVS router, which was, uh, uh, it was like a two and a quarter horsepower plunge router. It's when they first came out with plunge routers. So this was like 95 or 96 maybe. And... Uh, it doesn't have a removable motor, a motor to it. It's just a big plastic housing with the motor built into it and you move it up and down. So you can mount this in a router table, but it's not going to, you can't, it's nothing you can add a lift to. So if you put this router in a router table, mount it upside down, like you're talking to in a piece of melamine, which is, you know, I, I think perfectly logical, you're going to have to adjust it from underneath. There's just no way around it. Um, it. That might not be the best choice for a router underneath a router table. However, it still w will work. The IntelliFence from Ankara, keep it. That's what you have, isn't it, Hui? The IntelliFence? I have the Ankara Ultra. What did you have before that? No, I've always had the Ankara Ultra. Really? Maybe yeah, it was Sean. It was Sean had the IntelliFence. Yeah, I think you're right. He had the, the Woodcraft branded IntelliFence. I remember that. It was a pinnacle. Anyways. Yeah, that's right. That's anyways, right. that's a that's a really good router fence. Uh, keep it. But yeah. you might want to hold on to that Bosch uh, 1615 for the you know a handheld router. If you're looking for a good router that isn't going to break the bank and mm -hmm. don't want to spend the money on a lift, which I can appreciate, I would really take a look at the smaller of the Triton routers. Two and a, two and a half, two and a quarter, two and a half. Two and a quarter, two and a half, whatever it is. Yeah, because so it, it, it actually comes with an accessory. Yeah that goes right in through the base of it and you can use that. It's got like a built-in router lift, which yep. is really nice. And you can, you can adjust it from, from, from the top. 
from the top. Yeah, you drill the hole. Yep. And, yep. 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 It works really well. And that's what I had before I had my router left. Was yeah. That, was that thing. Um, also, the Bosch 1617 also yeah, has that feature. Yep. Yes, it does. Yeah. So, but those, neither one of those are, are cheap. And you've already got this router. So, yeah. if your budget doesn't allow for it, you can use this router. Keep that router fence, but you're going to have to adjust it from underneath. Yeah. Ryan, what do you think? I I agree with you that trying to mount the 1615 because it is the motor integrated into that plastic housing, trying to mount that's not going to, I mean, it's, yeah, probably not the, not the best way. Um, but it'll work. Could work. One, yeah. yeah. I, I tried to find a little bit of more information about the 1615 EVS online, and there wasn't. There wasn't a whole lot, although I did find a website called routerforums.com that seems like it's got lots of lots of inter interesting information about routers on it. So that little unofficial plug there, I just, just found that. Um, I've got Sorry, a, my kids are so loud. My children are just so loud. <laughs> They're just Can't so you put them in a cage? Uh, I wish I could. Uh, anyway, sorry, Brian, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> my bad. The other, the other thing about the... Uh, 1615 EBS with it being a, I think it's three and a quarter horsepower. Router. It's a, with it's that, oh, yeah, it's a big, it's a big boy to run by hand. Uh, yeah. So just, you know, be confident with it and make sure you take the, the proper safety precautions. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know that was a three horsepower. That's yeah. A, that's a bad boy there. Oof. Yeah. It looks, I have a Freud three and a quarter, three and a half horsepower, big boy like that. And man, that thing is—it's big, it's heavy. Yeah. So I, I think it might be the equivalent to the um, what's the big Festool router, the OF twenty two hundred. I can't remember. Whatever it is, the biggest one that they have. I that think thing it's a twenty two hundred. Yeah, twenty two hundred. Yeah. I don't so, uh, so I, I I've got a little tip that if you want to continue to use this router uh, in a router table, what you can do is you can take two pieces of melamine. And have two concentric holes um, bored into that uh, that melamine, and one is going to be bigger than the other one. And what you can do is you that bigger hole uh, cut to the exact size of the uh, inset hole in the two pieces of melamine. You can attach that to the Bosch sixteen fifty and essentially make it as an insert. For that router table, yeah, you can do that. It's it's a little bit of a DIY you know solution, but at least that way you can take it out and maybe with screws or whatever inset screws or or countersunk screws, you can make your adjustments, and then you have the um, top layer of your router table, so you can adjust to that top layer of the router table, and then you can pop it in. So That's maybe try that. So I think that's going to do it for our questions. Uh, Brian, what do you got going on in your shop? Um, I am still working on the same project I've been working on for like three months. I'm now to the finish stage. So getting ready to, to apply finish. I'm also finally made a gap stop for my split top workbench, which is, uh, nice to have done. And 
And I finished a box set I started back in December. <laughs> oh, yeah, you showed it at the beginning of the show. Yeah. What's, it, what's it made out of? Well, it is – I got the um, – Build Better Boxes book by Matt Kenny for Christmas. Nice. And it's a real basic design. It actually is the second version of it I made. The first one I, I messed up the, uh, I tried to do a painted finish on it and I messed it up. And in a fit of frustration, um, damaged the box beyond repair. So you I had to rebuild. You got mad and threw it? I stomped on it. Oh, it was the most embarrassing. After I did, I was like, "What?" I was like, "What is wrong with you?" It was like I don't have any adult temper tantrums, but wow, I never. I think I I had worked. I mean, I've had it sitting in my shop for six months, and I really just wanted it out. I didn't even want to finish it, and I took the time to finish it, and then it went really poorly, and I was like, "I'm done with this box." I just kind of threw it down. I didn't quite stop it. I just, yeah. but it had the same effect. So I rebuilt it with uh, something I know how to do, which is a uh, grain wrap miter or grain wrap walnut. <laughs> and then it's got it, but it does have a, a fabric bottom to it. So you open it up and it's got this like little watermelon print that I found at Michael's. And I'm going to give it probably to my daughter or something like that. So she can hold her little Barbie trinkets in it. Yeah. And then it's got a, a nice maple top with a, with an, a long curved ebony handle um, from the ebony stack that you gave me last year. Cool. So that's what I got going on. Nice. Happy to have that done. Nice. Hey. Oh man, I, I actually got a lot in the past two weeks. So I've machined all the doors. They're shaker style doors for this China cabinet that I did. Um, I've got all the muttons and everything done. I also machined the hinge mortises for the doors. And also I have these brass shelf pins that I did these brass shelf sleeves were brass shelf pins into the side of the carcass. And I did some uh, expansion slots for the crown molding that I'm putting up. I did quite a bit. And then also, oh, I got a magnetic stir for shellac. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, yeah. The yeah. Little, yeah. Little round thing that goes in there. and Yeah. I got I, that on prime days. I actually made one of those. Did you? Yeah. Yeah, well. you can buy those little pill like things on Amazon, and I just used a twelve volt fan and turned it upside down. A computer. Oh, that's fan. smart. That's smart. And yeah, zzz. yeah. And and then I've I've started work on an entry ta- way table that I was supposed to start like a year ago for my wife. So I I I got the mater- rough material cut out and 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 the templates made for that. So I I actually did quite a bit in the last two weeks. I had a, a good bit of time in the shop. How about you, guy? What do you got going on? Nothing. <laughs> there you go. You put out a video for uh, Ender Creality. 3D printer. I have been doing some work in the shop at work. They're pretty backed up in that department, uh, mainly because I don't work in that department anymore. They're really backed up. So they brought me in, and I'm 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 helping out with a couple of the projects, and uh, it's nice to be back in the shop. Yeah, it is nice. So even if it's only for, you know, five hours a day, it's, hey, it's better than nothing. Yeah. I'm not going to bore you with the stuff I'm making there because it's not very exciting. So <laughs> anyways, all right. Well, I think that's going to do it. And we would like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really does help us in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. 
So please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from you, the 3D work, the, the woodworking community, <laughs> the 3D printing community. So if you have woodworking questions you would like answered, you can send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us at or DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. And I can be found at Guy's Shop on YouTube, or you can just search just about any uh, social media platform for Guy's Woodshop, and you can find me. Hui? All right. So Alabama Woodworker on Facebook. I've actually been on Facebook quite a bit as of lately because uh, I don't know why, but I have been. Um, right. Yeah. Check out that. So how about you, Brian? No traditional social media, just uh, on Sean's site, simplecove.com, at Brian Schmidt. All right. Really good. So uh, I guess that's it, guys, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. See you in a couple. Take care. Take care. Bye.